All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to part four of our 2020 Faith is Not Blind intro to Apologetics podcast. I am joined again today by Sean Patterson. Sean. Hello. Glad to have you here. Great to be back. Keep this discussion going. Absolutely. All right. So for those of you who might have uh, found this podcast right now that haven't you know, listened to the previous three episodes, not only would I cur- encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes, but just to give you a breakdown of what we're doing here, this is actually a podcast that's a supplement to a class that we're doing here called 2020 Faith is Not Blind Intro to Apologetics, and we're doing it on Monday nights at the current moment. Uh, and it's really the introductory podcast, or, or sorry, an introductory class to the idea of apologetics, the practice of apologetics, the concept of apologetics. And this class is meant to be a supplement to that. And what I mean by that is that the class is in the way that classes tend to be, uh, you know, monological in the sense that someone stands up and teaches. And then what Sean and I are doing in these podcasts is a dialogue. And so we get to talk about some of the stuff. We go into deeper depths. And so if you're taking the class uh, and you're interested in the topic, then this is where we go deeper. But even if you're not taking the class and you just stumbled upon this podcast, I think that the episodes that we record for this uh, are interesting. And I think that you might find them interesting and helpful to your walk with Christ and to your faith and to wrestling with your doubts. And so here we go. Now, we had... uh, really gotten into at the end of the last episode the concept of science and whether science and Christianity are at odds with each other. So we talked a little bit about that broadly. We talk, uh, You told a little bit of a story of, of, of Galileo, mm-hmm. which is one of the, what I'll call kind of straw man that gets set up to show that the church and religion is actually opposed to science. And you went into, you know, like most things, that story has more to do with ego and power and politics than it has to do with doctrine or, or interpretation of scripture correct, or something like that. And so as, as we kind of look into science and whether or not science is opposed to the Christian faith, uh, you know, one of the places that I think we need to start with is at the foundation of the question of life. Mm-hmm. which is the origin mm-hmm. of the universe, the origin of being. The way that I talk about it is one of the questions you can ask is why are things the way that they are? Mm-hmm. But really the, the most fundamental question you can ask is why is there anything at all? Yes. Why is there something instead of nothing? And depending on your worldview, you're going to answer it in a specific way. And so I guess just kind of, you know, broadly, without any real pointed direction, mm-hmm. kind of open us up into that discussion. Origin of the universe, where did we come from, why is there anything at all, and, and all of that. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, first, disclaimer, I'm not a scientist. So, I, you know, it, I've read a lot, and I feel like I know a lot, but I also don't want to, you know, fall into this, um, I know more, or come off like I know more than I actually do. So I, I, I'm relying on, obviously, a lot of scientists that I've read. Uh, I believe w- their arguments are valid, and so I'm going with that. And yeah, so I just want to put that out there that, you know, e- I may sound like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm not an actual scientist. So, sure. uh, But as, as that, uh, when we come to that, I guess where I'd l- really like to start is, you know, back up just a little bit and look at, Um, the philosophy in science. And what I mean by that is a lot of scientists will posit things and then say, hey, from this data, then we can infer X. Well, as soon as they start saying, well, this implies or this infers, then they've moved out of science and into philosophy. And half the time, people don't realize what's going on, that there's this shift that's happened. Now, Anthony Flew was arguably the the probably the most... um, 
ardent atheist of the 20th century. He was, you know, he set the tone in philosophy for a lot of the questions between science, religion, atheism, and all that for a long time. Uh, he debated people over the, the years, and he just frustrated them because he just did not uh, believe a lot of the things that they were saying. He, he really had a problem with it. But interestingly enough, in 2004, he announced to the world that he had actually become a theist. Everybody was shocked. They thought, what in the world? How is this possible? This guy was <laughs> you know, the leading spokesperson for atheism through the 20th century. And but he was he was really before the new atheist oh movement yeah. of like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and all that, yeah. right? He was he was like uh 70s 80s and, 90s and even earlier, earlier because than that, uh okay. yeah, he, when he died um not too long ago, he was like 81. So he was doing stuff in the 50s all the way through the end of the 20th century and into the early part of the 21st century. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he was uh, something else. So he th says the same thing. He's basically saying, look, you might ask has how I, as a philosopher, Anthony Flew speaking here, could speak to issues treated by scientists. Well, the best way to answer this is with another question. Are we engaging in science or philosophy? When a study is done on the interaction of two subatomic particles, say, uh, that's science. But when the question is asked how those particles could exist and why, that is to be engaged in philosophical inquiry. So he went through this whole um, process of looking at science as it came out. He was willing to change his position, and it took him about 20 years to do so. And he basically said, look, uh, these are the things that convinced me. He said, how did the laws of nature come about? How did life originate from non-life? How did the universe even come into existence? And then there was a philosophical argument by a British philosopher named David Conway, whose book is like $154. So I don't know what the, <laughs> he never got into the specifics of that uh, argument in his book. Um, well, you didn't buy that book? No. <laughs> Actually, um, our library system is awesome here in Columbus. So yeah, if you true. have interlibrary loan, they can get it from other libraries. So I put it on reserve. So I will be getting that right, soon. <laughs> a little plug there for our library system. But so, so just uh, to kind of, because I actually think that this is, the most important thing when we talk about something like origins mm -hmm. of the universe and where, where things came from. Basically, what Anthony Flew was saying, correct? This is from Anthony Flew? Yes, from his book, There Is a God. Was that there is a, uh, a practice called science, mm -hmm. which does something specific. Mm -hmm. And then there's a practice called philosophy, right. which does something specific. The idea or the question of where did something come from is not a scientific inquiry right? in the sense of, something from nothing mm -hmm. you know something like the like uh, complexity of organisms mm -hmm. uh increasing over time can potentially be a scientific inquiry mm -hmm. but something like why is there something instead of nothing is actually outside the bounds of science right that's interesting right and i don't think i don't think people know that right uh no i don't th i don't think that a lot of people have thought that through. And I know Carl Sagan has actually, when he was alive, popularized this by his, what he called his BS detecting kit. Come on, bologna sandwich. <laughs> All right. Um, and there's a lot of philosophy in that bologna, let me tell you. Because when you look at it, there are some parts of the scientific method in there. But there's a whole raft of things that he puts out that he thinks is scientific thinking, but it's actually philosophy, like um, logical fallacies. And that's great. It's a great tool.
but he tries to make that a part of science as opposed to saying it's a separate thing. Yeah. I don't really know mm. why, but it is. It's a completely separate thing. I was really surprised when I saw his um, little detecting kit on how to think critically. And it's good, but he tries to make it all scientific as opposed to there's there's different things there. Because as soon as, like I said, as soon as you move from data and to you know presenting the data and say, well, this is what I discovered, to then what does that imply? Bam, then you've moved into a whole different realm. And as uh, Einstein famously said once, the scientist can sometimes be a poor philosopher. And it's true. A lot of them don't feel that philosophy of science is a valid discipline, uh, much the, to the chagrin of a lot of philosophers of science out there who yeah. even aren't Christians who say, wait a minute, that's my profession. And actually, it really is very uh, you know, viable. So, so to take a step back here, mm -hmm. you know, the, the practice of science to understand something uh, empirically and, and validate certain things that are discoverable about the material world. It, it is a practice. It's a tool mm -hmm. that is good to use in terms of certain kinds of inquiry. But to take science and to say that science can explain everything about the world in, in, in terms of what we're talking about in the class, to mm -hmm. make science a worldview right. is to necessarily bring philosophy and other disciplines into it. Right. Okay, that's it. That, that people need to know that because yes. I think generally speaking, <laughs> when people say, you know, believe science or whatever, what, what they're saying is, you know, either be rational mm -hmm. or believe the facts mm -hmm. or, uh, or, 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 you know, use science to, to learn things. Right. Which Christians, mm -hmm. historically speaking, mm -hmm. would say, yes, you should use science right. to do what science does. Mm -hmm. But if science is not there to explain the why, mm -hmm. then any kind of scientific worldview that claims to do that is actually not doing science. It's bringing in something else, some other kind of philosophy or philosophical practice. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's an important place to start. Yes. That's, that's why I wanted to back up before we got into that's, the specifics of the origin is that's that because this, this gets past people. And this is why I love philosophy. Uh, a lot of Christians are like, philosophy, why do you want to do? Well, I get it. If you read some philosophers, they're terrible because they're terrible writers. <laughs> you know, it's hard to read some of these guys because they're not like, clear. Uh, and, and the jargon that they use yes. is industry specific and yeah. academic. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, have to, you have to be, you have to learn a uh -huh. language basically mm -hmm. to, to read yeah. some of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not even sure if they really know what they're saying because it's, it's either circular or they contradict themselves or yeah, it's a real mess. But when I say I love philosophy, what I mean is what we talked about in like the first episode of how do you construct an argument and does it make sense? Are yeah. you making any logical mistakes? Are you assuming something? Are you not, you know, accounting for everything? So anyway, so let, let me use a real quick example um, that people may have heard in regard to that. Because like you said, um, the, the mantra seems to be, well, don't be dumb like those Christians. Be smart like us who are into science and things. Yes. And, and they try to make this dichotomy. So the claim seems to be religion is superstition and philosophy is just a matter of opinion. Science is the only area where we have true knowledge. It has, it has to be quantifiable or testable in a lab before knowledge can even be had. Otherwise, it's just one person's opinion over another. Religious beliefs are neither true nor rational because they are not scientifically testable. So that's generally the claim. The problem is, if you think about it, there's nothing in this statement that is actually from science. Right. These are philosophical assertions about the nature of science and religion and, and philosophy. And knowledge. And, and knowledge. Logic. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so it's 
it's easy to be, you know, hoodwinked into this or, or just like over, you know, over, uh, overwhelmed by it. And uh, like, how do I, how do I answer this? You know, you kind of get a little flustered. Um, but if, if, you know, we, we have this in mind ahead of time so that we can think, okay, there's usually some sort of assumption or some sort of unspoken, you know, premise or, or idea that is not readily seen. And so a lot of times these things will self-destruct, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is in this case, well, what sort of scientific experiment did you run to come to this conclusion? If knowledge is only from science, how did you come to this conclusion using any scientific method? And then that's where they will say, well, I used, uh, you know, laws of logic and reason. Well, that's not science, that's philosophy. So it, it's good to kind of make sure that we're uh, carefully considering these uh, assertions that are being made and not just give in to them and go, oh, okay, I, I guess I don't know how to respond to that. Hopefully right. this will help. So um, any any worldview that claims to explain everything or have explanatory power or mm -hmm. interpretive power over our experience is going to make certain assumptions. Right. And so it's true that the Christian worldview has assumptions and presuppositions within it. Mm -hmm. It's also true that a scientific worldview, mm -hmm. uh, a material, I, I want to call it naturalism, I think. Sure. A naturalistic, all that there is is what's quote-unquote natural or, mm -hmm. or nature. Mm -hmm. um, that has assumptions. Right. And presuppositions in it. Right. It is not purely rational, nor could it ever be. Right. Uh, or provable or empirically verifiable or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think as long as we understand that when we're comparing things, we are comparing right. worldviews, both of which have untestable assumptions and presuppositions, right. that changes the argument. Yes. Because what I think Christians get bullied into sometimes is that, well, your Christian faith, mm -hmm. the reason it's unreasonable is because you believe things that can't be proven. Right. Uh, but we, as, as, as people who believe in materialism or sci you know, scientism, mm -hmm or naturalism, mm -hmm. we don't. We, we hold ourselves to empirically verifiable. Right. And basically what you just unpacked in terms of the very foundation of the philosophy, that's, uh, that's not true. Right, exactly. There are assumptions, there are presuppositions. Mm -hmm. The question is, are they good ones? Right. Is there, like we talked about the last three episodes, is there amassed evidence right. to, that points towards those assumptions and untestable presuppositions being true? Right, okay. exactly. Yeah, and, and so science does... Um, have several areas that they cannot answer. There are certain things that some of these assumptions, some of these things that they have to uh, account for outside of science are, and I already mentioned this, logical truths. So any of the uh, logical um, methodologies that they want to use in employing how they go through their testing, that's fine. Metaphysical truths. So like the existence of other minds. Hmm. Is that, you know, is that something that could be strictly done by science i mean they'll they'll say that and we'll talk to the you know to this uh, topic in the next episode but uh what about consciousness and things like that it, the external world is real um and the past wasn't just created recently with the appearance of age so these kind of metaphysical truths are something that science directly can't answer these are starting into uh, philosophy like ethical beliefs what informs the scientists to report their findings truthfully is that science or is that something outside of science? Science doesn't really say what you should do with your um, findings or are you just doing it to get funding? Mm. So that, that, that's yeah. one of those things that I think people would say, well, that's self-evident, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like the example that we use in class is like, why should I not 
walk across the street and smack somebody right. in the head that I don't know. Right. And people would be like, well, that's self-evident. Right. But, but that's not actually a scientific answer to that question. Correct. That's not an empirically verifiable response. Mm. And so why should you be honest? Why should you not lie about findings? You know, all that stuff. Like, mm. yeah, yeah. The, the, I think that we as Christians would agree with them yes. that you should not. Mm-hmm. But I know what <laughs> my reason for it is. And, right. and they would have to answer that, that same question. Right. Right? And this kind of thing can open up all sorts of great conversations. You know, you want to start talking about um, the bigger questions, which will eventually get you to God and Jesus and the Bible and all that. You can start with this kind of thing. You can, you know, uh, talk about uh, these ancillary type things that, especially if they're into the scientific mind frame, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then, like the last thing, the the last couple of assumptions I think science um, operates in is that the universe is actually real. There are some who say that they're trying to say that the universe is kind of illusory or we might be in the matrix or something like it. Um, but if it is real, then we can investigate it and it could be in- experimented on. So if it's not real, then we really can't do science. So there's a huge assumption right there. Plus we can also understand reality. You know, Einstein said the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The fact that it is comprehensible is nothing short of a miracle. And this is, and so like, you know, the Christian assumption it, the, the reason that, that as what we know as science was birthed in Christendom mm-hmm. is not because somebody rebelled against the Christian assumptions. It is because of the Christian assumption that the world was created by an intelligent being and therefore it is intelligible was the reason that anyone ever thought we might be able to learn things about it. Absolutely. In a logical right. way. Yep. And so actually um, the the – what what you're what you're saying is kind of a problem for the scientific mm-hmm. uh, uh, naturalist worldview mm-hmm. is not a problem for Christianity. It's no. the reason that that inquiry was ever made in the first place. That is correct. Yes. Yep. That's good. That's that's a good place to start with this. Mm-hmm. So moving away kind of from mm-hmm. the abstract uh, in terms of you know philosophy and the philosophy of science and all that. Let's move into the actual mm-hmm. question. Sure. You know, the origin of the universe. Mm-hmm. What problem uh, does science have accounting for that? How does that compare to Christianity? You know, mm-hmm. what, what's the, what is this, the nature of this argument of, of the existence of anything at all? Right. It, well, for the longest time, scientists just thought that the universe was eternal. It always existed. That was just uh, the assumption forever, um, right up until... Uh, the early 20th century. So even even um, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, back in the 1200s, when he would do all a lot of his arguments about, you know, the beginning of everything and all that, because he believed that there was a beginning, because that's what the Bible says. But he thought, well, that's too easy. So I'm going to make it harder to argue for the existence of everything. And I'm just going to assume an eternal universe. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. So for the longest time, like I said, there was just this assumption that the universe just was always there. It's eternal. But by 1912, there was this astronomer by the name of Vesto Slipher. Interesting name. He observed that light coming from distant nebulae appeared redder than than was expected. So what's kind of interesting about this? Well, if you remember the Doppler effect and you're standing on the street and a, you know, ambulance or fire engine or whatever is coming and you hear the siren and it gets louder and then it kind of bends or has a kind of a distortion as it gets away from you well the same thing works with light and if 
the light is appearing redder when we're observing it you know out into the um, cosmos and that means it's moving away from us mm. and if it was bluer it would be moving towards us mm. so he was very concerned about this he was like well what does that mean if if things are moving away from us so he you know put his uh, findings out and by 1924 astronomer edwin hubble uh, he was working with the new 100-inch telescope out in um, Mount Wilson. And he found that Slipher's nebulae were not just clouds of gas around distant stars, but actual distant galaxies beyond our Milky Way. Whole new world opening up there. So shortly after this, physicist George Lemaitre uh, correlated Slipher's redshift data with Hubble's measurements of the distances to other galaxies. And Lemaitre showed that galaxies that were farther away were receding faster than ones that were closer to our galaxy. This suggested a spherical expansion of the universe in all directions in space. So this started to upend the whole notion that the universe is static. It's just always been here. It's eternal. It's like, wait a minute. Things are moving. Things are expanding. And if we rewind the tape, so to speak, and look at this expansion that's happening we would see that everything would come back to a very small point, you know, very a small, everything would collapse in on itself. So that just started the, the domino effect of completely blowing that theory of an eternal universe out of the water. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so basically, um, modern science mm -hmm. shows mm -hmm. with reasonable certainty that the universe is expanding from a single point of origin, which mm -hmm. points conclusively to a beginning. Yes. Um, wh what, um, in other words, the universe is not eternal. Correct. It's not a brute fact. Right. It's not just what has always been. Nope. There was a beginning mm -hmm. and the, the law of causality, mm -hmm. which actually governs all of science. Right would say that everything that had a beginning had a cause. Mm -hmm. And the universe had a beginning according to modern science itself, mm -hmm. and therefore the universe had a cause. Right. If you get rid of the yeah. law of causality, you can't do science. Right. So somehow, science has to account for a beginning. Yes. According to its own findings. Yes. The expansion of the universe mm -hmm. that's been found through very um, sophisticated technological mm -hmm. advancements right. and scientific inquiry. Uh, so, so why does that cause a problem for something like a scientific worldview? Well, I mean, it, there's been plenty of scientists since the late 20s that have had issues with this, and it was basically fought, um, this, this whole notion, for decades. So, like, take Einstein, for example. He started to see this, and he realized in his... Um, you know, findings, and when he was starting to work on his general theory of relativity, that he came to the conclusion that um, that there was a dynamic expanding universe that implied a beginning, and he actually didn't like this conclusion for whatever reason. He well, because it makes science harder. Yeah, and and he ended up altering his own equations by arbitrarily assigning a precise value to the force of expansion to ensure that the strength of gravity and the repulsive force exactly balanced. Thus, he depicted the universe in a perfectly poised static state. But he actually was called out on this, and he 
you know, uh, was informed by uh, this Lamartra guy that I, uh, George Lamartra, that I mentioned earlier in 1927 about this redshift evidence and what Hubble had discovered. So by 1931, uh, Einstein went out to the Mount Wilson uh, Observatory, excuse me, and said, I had to look at the evidence for myself. And when he did look at it, he said, oh, man, I was totally wrong. It was the greatest blunder of my scientific career. I was wrong for doing that. Um, you know, and then by 1949, there was uh, another physicist named Fred Hoyle who derisively called this uh, the Big Bang. And so this is where it came from. He actually was trying to uh, pejoratively explain what these guys had discovered because he like, was... oh, yeah, I bet it was some Big Bang. Or, yeah. Right, and he was trying to make a joke out of it. Now, it took until about the 60s for this term to actually come into popular use, and now it's just there. It's actually not accurate <laughs> to s describe it that way, and he was using it as kind of a joke to dismiss it. He, it took him until really near the end of his life, and he died, I think, in 2010, if I'm not mistaken, maybe, no, tw 2001, somewhere around there. And, um, and he started to soften his view and said, man, I, I don't know, maybe I was wrong all this time. But there was just this resistance because they did not like the implication of there being a quote-unquote uh, ultimate beginning to the universe. So there was a lot of resistance throughout the 20th century, even though um, more and more evidence started uh, coming about. Like in, I think, 1964, uh, Bell Labs, they were setting up, um, you know, a satellite to monitor some um, of the, I forget exactly what they were trying to, I should have wrote this down, but they were, they were you know, a, a new big um, uh, telescope to, not telescope, <laughs> Uh, this new uh, device, you know, to listen to all of the, the universe, all of its noise, all of the things it was making. But there was this one persistent noise that they couldn't clear out because they thought, wait a minute, the, what's going on? Is this like static? And they figured out that it was the universe and it was this cosmic background radiation that they were picking up on mm -hmm. that actually then confirmed even more that, yes, the universe had a beginning. So it wasn't like that. I mean, what they had found in the 20s and 30s should have been enough to convince them. But it took until the 60s that yeah. they were like, okay, maybe th maybe the we really did have a beginning. The antennas detect mm -hmm. the radiation. Yeah, yeah. From th that's like determined to be the afterglow mm -hmm. of, a, of a single explosion in the beginning. Right. Uh, which, which, again, just more evidence that points to origin. Right. A single moment. And just because, you know, you mentioned Einstein mm -hmm. and, you know, what's his what's his famous equation? Right. E equals MC squared. E equals right. MC squared. And so that's uh, energy equals mass times the speed of light right. squared. And basically what this what the theory of relativity is what's called. And what that means is that time and space and matter are all interdependent. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is because it means that there is no time, there is no space mm -hmm. and there is no matter apart from each other. Right. So since there is time, space, and matter, mm -hmm. it came from something. Right. And if it wasn't eternal, mm -hmm. then that means it came from nothing. Right. And so the question then, if you really want to have a worldview worth its salt, mm -hmm. is how does something right. come from nothing? Exactly. Why does that cause problems mm -hmm. in, a, in a naturalistic, materialistic view of the world? Well, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it, the answer then is uh, if when we look at what was before, because physics and other chemistry and things like that start to break down uh, as soon as they, you know, quote unquote, rewind the, the tape, 
so they can look right back as close as they can uh, to the beginning, there, there isn't any uh, matter, space, energy, what have you. And so they're always looking for a naturalistic cause. And so the problem becomes then, well, if there wasn't any matter or space or time, how in the world did anything come about? It exactly. has to be supernatural exactly. or beyond nature, correct? And so that's the real problem. It goes up against their worldview that they have, that it has to be naturalistic causes. You know, Thomas Nagel, who's a, a philosophy professor at New York University, once said, he said, it isn't that I don't believe in God. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And I feel like he is one of the few that are actually honest enough to put that in print. I think many others would probably feel the same way. I'm not going to assign, uh, you know, motives or anything like that to people I don't know. But he probably speaks for a number of people who have said we cannot allow a divine foot in the door, so to speak. Right. Um, Which is a quote. I can't remember who that's a quote from, but someone said yeah. that. Like, we yeah. can't let a divine foot in the door mm -hmm. regardless of the evidence. Which Right. You know, I actually understand the inclination in terms of scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. because, again, if you're if you're doing science in its most uh, basic level, right, you're you're trying to discover things about the material existence of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it is true that if instead of uh, running the experiment to verify that whatever you're trying to find and mm -hmm. you just say, well, who knows, it's probably God. Right. Then that is detrimental to right. the scientific pursuit. Yes. But the problem, and this is kind of what I just want to be really clear about, is that the naturalism is, in its very definition, believes that, that, that the world is a closed system of material forces and matter that exchange energy without purpose, but with effect. Mm -hmm. And in that, you can learn things about it, ab about it physically. Right. But naturalism, nature, mm -hmm. is by definition what exists. Right. So to try to figure out <laughs> where it came from, right. how something came from nothing, is definitionally excluded from the practice of naturalistic philosophy. Right. Because naturalism is concerned with nature, which is what exists, and it rules out the idea of supernature, right. which is something outside of right. that which exists right. naturally. Mm -hmm. Therefore, to explain origin, uh, according to Big Bang cosmology, mm -hmm. You have to be able to point to how something came from nothing. Right. Naturalism cannot do that. Right. And so they don't even actually have an answer. Right. You know, Stephen Hawking has given lectures on mm -hmm. this <laughs> where at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, these laws existed beforehand, but like laws aren't a thing. Right. You know, or, or there was energy. And right. it's like, well, that's a thing. Right. Well, there was, m there was uh, seeds. Of, well, that's a thing. That's not what we're asking. We're not asking right. uh, how, you know, what was there but like as the Big Bang happened. It's right. how did the beginnings mm -hmm. of life as we know it, of the existence of the universe, start. And right. naturalism cannot explain that because it is definitionally set up to exclude what could possibly be an answer to that question. Exactly. That's yeah. that is that is mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. uh, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, another way I've heard it said that that was helpful for me is that cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Another word for that is contingency. Right. That means that everything that exists is contingent upon something else. Mm -hmm. 
And so where we are today is contingent upon lots of different things, and you can trace that back uh, into what is philosophically called an infinite regress. Right. You can never get to the end of that. If every single thing is right. contingent mm -hmm. upon something else mm -hmm. for its existence and for its, uh, you know, increasing complexity. Right. Then you will get to a point where you have to get to something that is non-contingent. Right. That's excluded, first of all, in the inquiry of science mm -hmm. and materialism and naturalism. Right. Uh, it is also what we Christians would simply call God. <laughs> right. Right. So it is one of those things where when you think about the big questions, mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Like if if they don't if, if that worldview doesn't have a theory mm -hmm. for how all this came to be. Right. That doesn't strike me as a particularly helpful worldview. Right. It doesn't mean science isn't a helpful practice and pursuit. Absolutely. It means that it's very unhelpful in mm -hmm. answering one of the key questions that I think every human has to answer in order to live, which is where do we come from? Right. Someone like uh, Richard Dawkins, mm -hmm, who's mm -hmm. very, very popular author, yes. literally wrote in one of his books that evolution explains existence. Yeah, that's wow. which is silly. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, what David Bentley Hart says mm -hmm. that that when you read stuff like that, you realize that you're dealing with category errors that border on the infinite. Yes, like that's just a, that is a separate question. Right. Evolution it doesn't attempt to explain origins. Correct. Nor can it. No. It explains, you know, increasing complexity yeah. of the mechanistic mm -hmm. world that we live in. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, basically, in terms of that question, you know, it seems like, as a theist, mm -hmm. uh, I have some kind of answer to that that is around what is necessary to answer that question, which is right. that there's an uncaused, non-contingent, mm -hmm. ultimate being. Right. And maybe you don't even put the article in front of that. Maybe it's <laughs> there is uncaused being, right, which is God, mm -hmm. and something like the creation idea, right, is to me a better explanation than I mean, mm -hmm. we can't even account for that category, right, right. Interesting. Yeah. So a couple of things that came to mind while you were talking there, man. Lots of lots of thoughts. Um, yeah, you go back to. Uh, a talk that um, uh, actually wasn't a, a talk. I'm getting confused now. It's it was in a writing that um, that Hawking did, and he said that because the law of gravity exists, the universe will create itself. Now, if that's not sheer nonsense, I don't know what is. And the man was brilliant, and yeah. yet, like you said, laws don't cause anything. They don't create anything. They just describe what happens. I'm not sure why he would say that, but this sometimes is what, uh, what I'm referring to in the beginning of philosophy creeps into science, that they try really hard to make sense of these things that they see because they don't want to acknowledge that there could quite possibly, you know, be a, a deity. Right. And I, I get I it. They, they think that it's maybe on the level of fairies and goblins and ghosts and things like that. And it's like, no, it's not. Well, <laughs> it's Steve, Stephen Hawking is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And Richard Dawkins is a smart guy, mm -hmm. it, generally speaking. The, they paint themselves into a corner right. ideologically. Right. The idea of something non-contingent is impossible in right. their framework of the world. Yeah. 
Now, logically speaking, it's necessary to posit something non-contingent right. in a world of contingencies mm -hmm. according to their worldview, but they can't do it right. because it doesn't fit within the cause and effect right. mechanistic idea of reality. Right. And so it, it, makes them, it makes someone like Stephen Hawking say something nonsensical. Right. It makes something like Richard Dawkins say something mm -hmm. that is perhaps an infinite category error. Right. And speaking of infinites, so this will like blow your mind, but infinites are really more theoretical that works in math an actual infinite can't it doesn't work it doesn't make sense so you get into all sorts of absurdities there was a mathematician named david hilbert who came up with this thought experiment of let's say we have a hotel and that hotel was an infinite hotel and it was full first problem how do you fill an infinite but let's say somebody wanted to come and say i want a room Okay, well, then you would just move everybody over one room and you put them in and you have room, but it's full. Now, here's the thing. You can remove all the odd-numbered room occupants and it would still be full. You could do the same with all the even-numbered occupants and it would still be full because those are actual infinites in, the, in mathematical terms. So there's not just one infinity. There are several infinities. You have the odd-number sets of numbers. You have the even-number sets. And... In between zero and one, all those fractions, that's actually infinite too. Crazy. But it works in math. But in reality, it doesn't work. So why bring this up? The actual infinite universe couldn't exist, especially with time being part of that, uh -huh. because then we would never get to today. Right. right Does that right, make right. sense? I mean, I know that's a kind of a... a yeah. But I... I that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that is... I mean, it is an abstract way of understanding, but, but, but it does make sense in, in, in terms of like, even if you got rid of something like the origin, like a, the Big Bang or whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it, the beginning, right. something coming from nothing, and you said that the universe was eternal and infinite, mm -hmm. a brute fact, that in and of itself is an extremely sophisticated philosophical concept. Correct. Not a scientific discovery. R right. Like you, I mean, there's volumes of books written both on the subject of nothing mm -hmm. or the mathematical quantity of zero because mm -hmm. that's actually very complicated mm -hmm. and on the idea of infinity right. or eternity mm -hmm. because those aren't things that we experience nor can we uh, rationally and empirically verify what right. that means right so i think that like where i kind of want to end the the origin question because you brought mm -hmm. up math yes which brings us into mm -hmm. the next question yes yes but where i want to wrap this up is that it is true that a materialist naturalist worldview definitionally cannot account for origin correct what one would have to posit mm -hmm. to be consistent with the law of cause and effect and to avoid the infinite regress of where did that come from where did that come from where did that come from mm -hmm. is an uncaused non-contingent cause right and that is impossible mm -hmm. within the naturalistic framework yep so that framework will never ever be able to answer that question nope. uh, perhaps they could bring in other philosophy to right. try to do that right um, but to me one of the comforts is like you know I have a very uh, simple understanding of how to solve that problem right which is that there's a creator God right not any creator God mm -hmm. and, and we don't have to get into the details of what the Christian creation story is right now but right. but there is a God mm -hmm. a non-contingent mm -hmm. infinite being who who is the source mm -hmm. of that creation how does something come from nothing right. that right how does 
time, space, and matter appear mm-hmm. out of no time, no space, and no matter. Right. That. Right. And so whatever you think about, you know, the specifics of what, you know, is classically the historical Christian understanding or doctrine of creation, the the very fundamental philosophical idea is a much better explanation than saying it's impossible to actually explain. Right. <laughs> right. So with that, mm-hmm. in terms of the question of origin, mm-hmm. materialism or naturalism is not a good worldview. No. I don't mean good and bad, like morally speaking. I right. mean, it's not... Uh, it, it does not successfully answer that question, nor no. can it. No. Okay. It, yeah. That's an important. Okay. So mm-hmm. that that's a very very good discussion. Yep. Uh, when you want to, so it's not really rational. Mm-mm. No. Okay. Yeah. And the only <laughs> other, yeah, the only other option is that w- what we'll get into in this next section. It, it actually they try to answer the question of not only the origin but what is commonly referred to as the fine tuning of the universe. Yes. So so let's let's go there. Yeah. Um, it's not just that we believe that the universe exists. Mm-hmm. It's that we live in a universe where in our specific context, mm-hmm. uh, with some of these pictures that are coming out with oh these yeah. new telescopes, Love by it. the way, Beautiful. the expanse and the, the, just the absolute magnitude of, s- of yes. what kind of universe we have. Right. We're on a, a tiny planet mm-hmm. in a tiny section of that universe. Right. And yet, here we are, right. complex, carbon-based life mm-hmm. um, with something that uh, the philosophy of the mind calls consciousness. Right. And so in terms of what type of conditions have to happen mm-hmm. in order for us to be what we are right. standing here today, right. the probability of that, the mathematical equations of that, l- mm-hmm. let's talk about that because sure. that's an important thing too. Absolutely, yeah. There, There's a... a, a I like to start with, um, you know, Sir John Polkinghorne. He was a Cambridge physicist. Uh, he's passed on now, but he later in life became a priest. He's he was a full-on Christian, uh, as well as a physicist who really was um, instrumental in working with the whole um, area of um, quantum mechanics. And yeah, he's he's a smart guy. So any of his books are really really cool. Now he says that. Um, if, if we want to try to get a, a picture, an image on what this fine-tuning looks like, imagine a universe-creating machine, whatever that would look like, but it has many dials and sliders that represent the fundamental forces and properties of our universe. And these dials and sliders have a near-infinite range of settings to choose from, yet all are just set right within a very narrow bandwidth for stars to form, for um, chemistry to even happen, at all as well as just life in general to you know because carbon is one of the most common elements throughout the entire universe um, but it still has certain um, parameters that need to happen for it to be developed so um, some of these are so precisely tuned that if if they're off by a little bit then it's not just that life doesn't exist it's nothing exists like Planets can't form and stars can't form properly. Um, they're either be, you know, too light or too dense to be able to be any good at all. There's literally like dozens and dozens of these parameters that are um, that have to be set so just sci- fine. Scientifically speaking, they're called constants. Right. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. like cosmological constants. Correct. There's 
terrestrial earthly constants mm-hmm. and if if and what you're saying is th- and you're going to get into if, mm-hmm. if some of these constants are a little bit one way or the other right there's no us right not at all yep and so fred hoyle if we you know remember him from just a little bit ago he said uh, later in his life because he was starting to uh be you know, uh, exposed to this um, information that he said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics to make life possible. I always love how they try to get monkeys in there, you know. Um, (laughs) But he, you know, he was a staunch critic of the universe having any kind of a beginning. Um, He even said that every cluster of galaxies, every star, every atom had a beginning, but the universe itself did not. But that's what he was trying yeah. to elucidate. But I think as he was going along, he realized with looking at the fine-tuning parameters that he, he actually said, man, there might just be a super intellect that's out there that had to do something to make life possible. And, that, and that's like experientially adequate, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, the, before we get into numbers, mm-hmm. because actually this, this creates a math problem for right. naturalists. Right, right, right. But before we get into the numbers and the math and just some of the incredible mm-hmm. um, improbability right. of us being here, uh, the, the, the most clear way I've heard it defined is to say that intelligibility assumes intelligence. Right. So if you land on Mars and you find a Snickers wrapper mm-hmm. on the ground, you, you are not going to assume that that happened naturally through right. random cause. And if you're going to assume that someone was there and they ate a Snickers bar. Right. That Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Right. Rocks and rock formations happen mm-hmm. naturally. Right. Quote unquote, mm-hmm. through the forces of wind and, you know, glaciers and water and time. And right. And, you know, but but to see faces of U.S. presidents, mm-hmm. you assume mm-hmm. intelligent design behind it. Right. To anybody would say it would be ridiculous mm-hmm. to assume that either of those scenarios I just said happened, quote unquote, naturally. Right. And so here we are with seeming incredibly complex levels of intelligibility right. of a world and mm-hmm. ourselves and yet the kind of common naturalistic idea right. is that it's all random and quote-unquote natural somehow right right yeah and and these finely tuned constants have been present from the beginning of the universe some have tried to argue well maybe they came along later no no this this was from the very beginning as far as scientists can tell um, you know, the cause of this fine-tuning must be one of three things. Chance, physical necessity, or the multiverse. At least that's what has been posited. Well, the evidence doesn't really um, support the first two options much at all. So Before, before we mm-hmm. get into that, sure. just because I, w- I want to I camp here for a second. Oh, when sure. we talk about constants, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like what, what types of, what kinds of things, what kinds of constants in, in our galaxy and reality are we talking about? Well, we're talking things like, um, you know, the the fundamental forces. So we've got, uh, you know, the uh, gravity. Yeah, and gravity, right. The expansion rate of the universe itself. Um, you know, Hawking once said that, and Stephen Hawking did a lot of work on this fine tuning in like one of his last books that he wrote in like 2012, I think it was. And that part of it is really cool. But if you read the first part, there's a lot of philosophy in there, man. There's a lot of metaphysics in that book. Um, I think it's called The Grand Design, which is an interesting title, <laughs> if yeah. you think about it. Um, but, he, you know, he talks about things like if the expansion rate, and again, try not to think of it as an explosion. Uh, there have been many scientists that say, you know, try to get that 
concept of Big Bang out of your head because it's more like an unfolding that happened really fast. It's not so much a, like a violent explosion. It's more of just a, you know, a, a flowering, if you will, but at a really quick rate. And and Hawking said that if it was either that that expansion rate of how uh, fast or slow it went out, if it was off by just fractions of however they measure the speed, I don't, I don't want to say miles per hour because that may, that sounds like you know driving a car, but you know whatever their their rate is, um, the universe wouldn't be here. So even how it came about in the first place had to um, be at a certain speed, at a certain rate of expansion. Otherwise, um, yeah, n none of the planets and stars would form. It would, things would either uh, collapse, clump, in on clumps out, or or just fall apart. Right, and, right, and right. If it was too apart. fast, if it was too slow, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. If there was too much gravity, if there wasn't enough gravity, mm -hmm. uh, w one of like for example, just because this one is something that I think people can wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. Um, the the gravity, we we understand that we don't float away because of gravity, so we know that right. gravity has some kind of effect on us. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Earth, if the gravitational force on Earth were altered by point, and then thirty eight zeros, right, one percent, right, point thirty eight mm -hmm. zeros, one percent, mm -hmm. we we would not exist, right, and this would not exist, right. That is an I mean, to the degree of any kind of rounding, right. That's a zero. That's a zero percent. Right. That's how fine-tuned even mm -hmm. just one thing like gravity is. Mm -hmm. And let's say that there's 122 right. of these constants, mm -hmm. which is one estimate. Right. Uh, there, people, yeah. you know, kind of c categorize these things differently. Right. But if there's like 122 of these, then it's something like if you assume that there's, you know, 10 to the 22nd planets which mm -hmm. is 10 with 22 zeros after it right. which is a lot in, mm -hmm. in in the universe which is of course an estimate then you would get a probability of us existing as this is uh, with something that's like 10 to the 138th power one in 10 to the 138th power so mm -hmm. 10 mm -hmm. with 138 zeros behind it one in that is the chance right that we exist and what that means I mean that's that is that number is basically double the amount of atoms that there are in the universe. Right. So think about that. Mm -hmm, that's the mm -hmm. chance that we exist. Yes. Double the amount of atoms that there are in in the whole universe. Right. And and so w what that means is that there's a zero percent chance. Right. That we exist <laughs> without right. some kind of intelligent cause mm -hmm. behind it. Right. And so so because you know something like naturalism is based upon things like mathematics and laws. That's a math problem for them. Right. They have to try to solve that. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the things they've come up with in terms of solving that? Right, yeah. And so, yeah, like I was saying, it was there's uh, chance, physical necessity, or the multiverse. That's how they try to uh, reason these things. And um, real quick, a, a book plug by um, Luke Barnes. He's a physicist out of Australia, and he's got a book called A Fortunate Universe Life in a finely tuned cosmos. It's a really good read. It's a very good book. You probably just get it at the library if you didn't want to buy it. Um, 
and it talks a lot about this and it goes into great detail. I actually kind of left some of the mathy stuff out because I knew some people that in the past when I've taught this class kind of glazed over. So <laughs> I probably cut out too much, but that was good that you at least The only thing it, I want know? people <laughs> to understand about those numbers yeah, yeah. is that they're very, very big. Yes. Uh, essentially impossibly big. Impossibly big, yes. And so that leads scientists mm -hmm. or, or people who want to hold on to the rationalistic, uh, naturalistic worldview right. to create theories yes. in order to help solve that possibility exactly and yeah. you said it's chance, chance necessity or the multiverse or the multiverse okay yeah. so explain so chance you just said uh, there's literally no chance it's not even like you know you're um one in a million kind of it's not that it, it it's ridiculous um that all of this just happened to just come about there's no physical necessity that the universe has to be this way and some have tried to combine the two, some sort of, you know, chance and necessity combination. And that, eh, that sort of works, but it's still really lacking. So it seems like the, the best option for both the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning, both is uh, trying to be posited with this thing called the multiverse. I'm sure plenty of people have heard it. Obviously, it's in popular culture now. It's all over yeah, the yeah. place, uh, no matter where you turn. Did you ever watch Man in the High Castle? Yes. So that was yes. th that, uh, that was crazy. It was an interesting thing, uh, yeah. kind of historically, but then it got into the multiverse yes. idea. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah, and uh, it, yeah, it's and it's super popular now, everywhere now. It seems like everybody wants to do it. Uh, the problem is, is that right now we don't have any observable evidence that there's a multiverse, <laughs> um, let alone a multiverse generator, because some of the theories behind it is it's not just that we have like our universe is huge and our universe is comprised of many galaxies. Now, uh, it was not that long ago when the assumption was there's about a hundred billion galaxies and each galaxy has about a hundred billion stars. But with, like you said, with the Webb telescope and all that getting better and better uh, pictures, um, more and more information is coming in that says, well, we were off a little bit. Now it's closer to like 200 billion galaxies and counting and each galaxy probably has closer to 200 billion stars. So it's actually like doubled within the past 20 years just because our instrumentation is better and we can see things more clearly. So and, and th these are these are impossibly big numbers, impossibly big like numbers. it's unfathomable right. the kinds of right. quantities we're talking about here. Right. And so it's that's just one universe, right, that we know of. They're positing that there are millions upon maybe uncountable universes outside of our universe and that there's a mechanism of sorts um, and that again kind of like the big bang only not derisively that there is some sort of multiverse generator it, they don't know what that is they don't know how that is but something the the, the theory goes is that is um, producing uh, a whole bunch of universes like ours oh okay so that's that's kind of crazy there's no evidence for it well there is no evidence for this mm -hmm. so why are they positing it because that gets away from <laughs> the the obvious conclusion you know uh, because if there was if there was that many other universes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then these probability numbers that we're talking about one in 10 right. to the 138th power mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that gets cut down right if there's more instances of universes that are happening right so it, it, it cuts out well our origin well where did it come from well it came from this multiverse generator well what's that and where did that come from well it doesn't matter because we're the only ones that really matter and we're here so that's explains the origin of the universe so huzzah now uh, I, c I can kind of buy that but not really because there's you know again we have no evidence for it and it just sounds like a story the real problem for me comes in when you say 
um, when the argument is put forth that the reason for the fine-tuning is due to the multiverse. Well, on the face of it, what does that mean? Well, their argument is this generator generates just an infinite number. Again, we're back to an infinite number? I don't think so. A large number, I will buy, of universes, and so that eventually our type of universe with all of its fine-tuning parameters will have to just come out just because if you have something that's spitting out all possible types of universes, well, then ours will come out eventually. We just won the cosmic lottery. Yay. That's, to me, that is the worst way of, of reasoning ever because there's no reason to think that this universe, uh, yeah, this multiverse, this universe generating mechanism, machine, whatever you want to call it, has to create all types of universes. What if it just is the thing that just kind of creates a certain amount of universes, the same kind within a certain parameter, and and we somehow are, are the one, you know, offshoot that, that's the wingding or whatever you want to call it? You know, it's it, there's no reason to think that it has to do this. They just say, well, it would do this. Well, why? Why would it do that? That makes no sense to me that, that you have... So, to me, that's, it's that simply, sounds like where they're It's simply it. a theory oh, yeah. that helps explain the impossibility of the math right. of, of, of the fine-tuning of the universe, the fact that we mm -hmm. exist and the improbability of right. this existing. And so this is, you know, uh, this is where ideology can paint you into a corner. Yep. Because these are naturalists who are saying this, who claim to abide by scientific worldview. Right but they are now positing theories that have no empirically verifiable evidence yep. uh, because they have to keep the assumptions, the right. philosophical assumptions that they're making mm -hmm. intact. Right. So that's, that, that's an important thing. Like I, one of the things I really want people to understand from these podcasts and these classes is that uh, a worldview like <laughs> scientism is not neutral. Mm -hmm. It makes right. these assumptions. Right. It has these philosophical things that it clings to mm -hmm. just like any worldview right and so it makes people say ridiculous things like maybe there's a multiverse right without having any evidence for it betraying your very system of empirical verification right uh and evidentiary you know discovery right because there's an issue mm -hmm. the issue is that we are incredibly fine-tuned for life yes to a uh, degree that makes the probability of that mm -hmm. basically and there've been a yeah there've been a number of of atheist naturalists that have said this is one of the big sticking points for them that they're like I don't know how to get around this I they feel like they can get around the other ones which I you know other um, lines of evidence for the existence of god I don't think their answers are very good but at least they're honest in saying this one trips them up this one is like whoa I I don't know how to answer this. And so that's why they come up with things like the multiverse. There's a lot of uh, astronomers and astrophysicists who become who become theists. Yes. I don't know if they become Christians, but they become right. theists. Exactly. And it's and I think one of the reasons is like if you're dealing with physics mm -hmm. here on Earth, right. you can stick within the realm of cause and effect and mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to answer this question of, of origin right. if if you don't want to. Like your day-to-day -day practices probably aren't asking for that right but when you're talking about a universe that is as expansive as we're discovering it is mm -hmm. then it becomes a little more necessary to ask the question where all of that came from right. and how it happened and so you do see a lot of uh, uh you know a lot of um uh not conversions necessarily mm -hmm. like to christianity but right but they become 
theistic in their understanding of the world because the realm of the (laughs) Mm -hmm. of of all of the universe and exploring that kind of necessitates that you answer this question that i'm claiming naturalism can't answer right so then um you know the the when we talk about fine-tuning it's Mm -hmm. not just that the universe is fine-tuned for life it's actually you can drill down into something like a human being right and the complexity of that yeah and talk about the fine-tuning of that so what are some of the things that that people talk about in terms of the fine-tuning of our particular life yeah and just real quick to back up there's fine-tuning in our solar system certain things have to be set up to uh you know a adjudicate life you know to have that happen and then our planet itself has to have a lot of parameters for then life to come about and yeah there's there's a lot of fine-tuning um in our in ourselves as well um i love the discovery institute which is the uh intelligent design community the id community i know they they have some controversy some people don't like them that's fine um that's cool I cannot go with theistic evolution because the theistic evolutionists basically say everything that um, the evolutionists naturalistically say I agree with. The only difference is I believe that God started it all. There's some real problems that we can get into uh, with that. And and I just feel like the um, ID community has been um, misunderstood. And I feel like their science is so good. Uh, I highly recommend like uh, Stephen Meyer's three books signature in the cell um darwin's dilemma and his new one the return of the god hypothesis great stuff Mm. this is me not i'm not saying this is my 14th (laughs) position this is just me um and this is where i got a lot of my stuff from and i i've i've studied and read this and both sides and looked at what people have said and for me i feel like everybody seems to that criticizes id seems to misunderstand it or haven't even read the literature for crying out loud it seems like how how can you make this you know particular criticism if you haven't even read the material um so that's just a quick disclaimer to say this is where i got a lot of my information from and i i think it's really compelling um you know to start with we we're going to talk about the quickly and real briefly the origin of life because that's a huge thing that that people are on about scientists can't agree with how life even originated you know on this planet some think it was you know somehow in the atmosphere and then fell down to the planet some think that it was developed in the ocean Uh, some think uh, that it was um, on the surface some think it was underground or really under the crust you know way down under there and some sort of thermal tunnel under the ocean the phrase you always hear Mm -hmm. people talk about in this is the primordial soup right but that's actually not that's actually not a, a theory of origin. Right. That's like early. Yes. Non-complex. Right. Life. Right. So, mm-hmm. so even mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that I believe that's true, but right. even that in and of itself is not actually an explanation for the origin of life. Right. No, it's not. It's just saying, how do you think it originated? But that doesn't mean that. Yeah, it's. Well, it's actually, I mean, it's saying that here was an early form of it. Yeah. It's not even trying to answer the question how it came to be. Right, right. Because and it can't, which we already talked about. But yeah, right. so, so go, on, go on. And then, or in space, meaning it was delivered to our, our planet by aliens, which a lot of uh, scientists actually believe. I'll just leave that there <laughs> and say that that's, that's a, you know, but where did they come from? Um, and for the most part, they don't care. So there's, there's some problems with, uh, with origin of life. A lot of them uh, are, are convinced that certain things happen, but it's just not, um, it's not settled. As far as like where life originated, none of them agree with each other. 
um, and everybody thinks that the others are wrong. As so far there's as different camps. Yeah, yeah. Within the scientific community or yeah. the naturalistic community. Okay. Yeah, and there and there are certain problems like oxygen. Oxygen is necessary, and yet it can act as a poison, preventing chemical reactions that produce organic compounds. So some have tried to posit that oxygen wasn't present on early Earth, but there's evidence that there really was, you know, there's oxide in rocks and things like that that says, well, yeah, it really was there, so how do we do that? I mean, oxygen is necessary, but it's very dangerous. Like, in our atmosphere, it's only at about 20%. And if it was any higher, things would just start catching fire. <laughs> We'd have spontaneous combustion mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, and it has to be inert to a certain level uh, temperature-wise. So it has to be at a certain place in the atmosphere, and it can't just be a- a- anywhere and everywhere. Um, so it, that's some real problems. There's you know, a host of problems, and I, I want to, I'm like, I'm just salivating to go through them, but I also know that we don't have a ton of time. There's a lot of stuff I want to go through, but there's several problems uh, apart from that that really make it difficult to say, yeah, life just, you know, just happened. Um, the, the biggest thing that I can say is that um, we've got um, the, the, speci- you know, the, the amount of information that we find in things like uh, proteins and our DNA are so astronomically huge that to just say, yeah, they just all kind of came together, we're back to that astronomically big numbers like the fine-tuning of the universe uh, kind of thing. We've also got a, like a chicken and egg problem. Well, proteins are the building blocks that created life in little factories called ribosomes, but ribosomes are made out of proteins. So how does that work if proteins are the building blocks that Mm. created life in ribosomes, but ribosomes are made out of proteins? Hmm. Proteins also require enzymes and cell membranes to emerge. However, enzymes and cell membranes are constructed of proteins. So we've got a couple of, if this just happened by itself, we've got some problems because it seems like things needed to already exist to make other things happen. It, there's that circular kind of thing. So Yeah, so, some, of, like, some of the stuff that you're talking about is a little unfamiliar to me like mm-hmm. in terms of language mm-hmm. and, and understanding that, but, but, it, but it jives with kind of what my understanding of naturalism is, which right. is that you, it does a good job of understanding mm-hmm. what exists, right. but it cannot account for how it came to be. Right. Uh, it, you know, especially origins. Right. Like, like you said, you can talk about what's in the cell, mm-hmm. but how, where that cell came from. Right. In terms of it wasn't there. Right. And I know, I know that th- whatever is the very foundational building block of that cell. Right. It wasn't there, and then it was. Right. How like that? Yeah. The origin right. is really the the, the problem. Mm-hmm. So origin of life is a problem. Yes. And then. When you start to talk about how much information is in a cell or, oh, or yeah. in uh, a DNA, you know, and in, in the things that make us up molecularly, mm-hmm. what kind of like, I don't know if you have numbers or anything, but like what kind of fine tuning are we talking about with that kind of stuff? Yeah, we're, we're talking ridiculous, ridiculous numbers here. So, um, you know, just to kind of lay a, a, again a little foundation here, Richard Dawkins was famous to, uh, to say that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, appearance of having been designed. Right. But he feels like naturalistic uh, causes can explain it and it, we don't need you know, to posit a God. So, well, how can we tell if something has been designed or not? Again, I refer back to Stephen Meyer's book, Signature in the Cell. There's specified and complex information. 
and there's all sorts of information theory that it goes through. So if you're a real nerd like I am and love that kind of information theory, he talks a lot about that and understanding uh, how to differentiate between different types of information. And then uh, Michael Behe, in his book called Darwin's Black Box, illustrated that the thought of the cell for a long time, it was just this little blob of jelly, like a little um, nothing. It was just pretty simple. It is so complex. There are like five different types of little factories that do things like clean up the cell and uh, repair things and all that. It, and each one of those little machines inside a cell is made up of specific complex uh, proteins and, and, and things that you can't reduce it any further, meaning chemically, protein-wise or whatever, or else it won't work. And so if those things don't work, the cell isn't healthy. If you don't have healthy cells, then you don't have a living human being <laughs> or, or living anything living any animals so we're talking very fine yeah. uh, back to kind of like a fine-tuning uh, not just in the universe but fine-tuning in us as well yeah like because you it's not simply you know because i know like in terms of like science class growing mm -hmm. up and like newtonian physics it's interesting to talk about atoms right where it's like there's a you know there's like a, mm -hmm. a neutron and proton electrons right there is actually something about that explanation that's pretty simple mm-hmm that is not really what's going on no. at, at the the most right. you know quantum levels of, of cells. It's right. it, it, like you said, it's an incredibly complex, unlikely thing. Right. And then there's a concept that I've heard of called irreducible complexity. Correct. D uh, do you have something on that? That's basically Michael Behe's stuff. Okay. And so all of the things in his book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, he talks about several different mechanisms in the body. One of them is like blood clotting. I think that's great. It hardly ever gets talked about. The The one that gets talked about with them, uh, I guess because it's, it, uh, it's a cooler illustration, is the uh, tail of a bacterial flagella. It, the, the tail unit looks like a, a motor. <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. very mechanical looking. But the one that I really like that nobody seems to talk about is our blood clotting uh, mechanism. So the the system that works to clot our blood so that we don't bleed out every time we get a cut is very complex um, and very detailed. I, I don't have specific numbers on that, but these are just the examples of how these things have you know, such detail that if they didn't work, again, yeah. we, we would bleed out. Um, but what I do have some numbers on and is... We, and we never would have mm, gotten to oh, this stage of yeah. life. Oh, no, no, yeah, because <laughs> as soon as we got one little cut, we'd just bleed out. Right. And, and so this mechanism couldn't have it couldn't have just evolved in the normal sense because it, we're talking about um you know a, a bunch of trials and errors well you you can't really have too many trials and errors when you're bleeding out you, it, you can't pass that on to the next generation if you're dead because you've lost your blood so that's a huge one to me it's like how does that work so um and he's got several other examples in that uh, darwin's black box book that i would highly recommend so yeah that's that, that, that's interesting i think mm -hmm. i mean honestly maybe we'll do a uh a, a podcast sometime on the kind of like sure you know getting more into this stuff. oh yeah i don't Absolutely. you know in terms of the actual process mm -hmm. that we believe mm -hmm. in or whatever it's probably right. not going to touch on that uh, right. in this podcast right but there is th there is this idea with complexity like you said mm -hmm. where that really complex process of clotting blood mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is just one right. very, very necessary complex thing that allows life to, right. to exist the way that it does and allows us to be the way that we are. Right. And so if you lose that, 
mm-hmm. part of this really much more complex web of things right. than, than, than you cease to be. Yes. A, 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 <laughs> as it were. Right. And there's all kinds of, of mm-hmm. things like that. And so, again, um, when you look at the way that a cell works, mm-hmm. when you look at the way an amalgamation of cells work, right. when you look at the way that the totality of the human body and all of its uh, cellular, right. atomic, subatomic levels, it it is something that intuitively points to design. Right. That's why one of da- uh, um, um, Dawkins' mm-hmm. you know main talking points is he he just continuously right. says yes it looks like it points to design right. but it doesn't. Right. It looks like it points to design but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. We're reading a, a a leadership book right now by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. Mm, yes. And Simon Sinek is I would say probably an agnostic or atheistic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, someone in in the world of evolutionary psychology. Right. And throughout the book, he says the word, nature designed us. <laughs> he says that phrase yeah. to the point that I started circling it. Right, right. Because it was like, you can't get away from design. No. Because he wants to talk about how um, the culture that you set up at work mm-hmm. can be healthy right. if it matches the way that nature designed us. <laughs> So right, if it right. has the type That's of funny. community that releases oxytocin in your brain, right. if it has the kind of encouragement that releases serotonin, or is it like a dog-eat-dog world right. that raises you know, the, the chemicals that give us fight or flight, right. you can create cultures that affect people chemically. Right. And so what he says is that you need to create cultures that reflect the way that nature designed us. Right. But really, evolutionary psychology or mm-hmm. atheistic mm-hmm. Uh, materialism does not think that there was design. Right. They think that what what we are points to something that looks like design. Right. But that's not really what it is. Right. And so, uh, I- intelligent design to me makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. on its face because right. our very being should assume intelligence. Yes. 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 Because the. The point that uh, Stephen Meyer makes, which I think is brilliant, he says, um, because of the, uh, let me back up just a little bit and, and talk about DNA. You know, when Francis Crick first discovered it back in 1953, along with Watson, not discovered it, but, you know, elucidated what it actually was. Yeah, sure. And, and how we think of it and, and look at its system. What he uh, figured out like four years later was that how the DNA works is not chemical and it's not its structure but it's the actual order of the ATCG. And the interesting thing is, the reason why he saw this is that, you know, he was more of a physicist, but he was also, uh, his PhD program was interrupted by World War II, and he was actually a code breaker during the war. So he had this code mentality, and he was looking at the, at the DNA and the ATCG and how it was all aligned. He goes, that's like a code. And so Myers, uh, point is there isn't a single example anywhere in the history of the universe in which information in that kind of specified complex way not just general vague kind of random information or or just simple information came from anything other than an intelligent source so his you know his surmising is look uh, i just want to show that naturalistic means could not uh, do this you know anthony flew as i mentioned earlier this is what brought him, in, in part, to believe that a God exists. Now, he uh, didn't become a Christian, as far as we know, before he died at, at age 81. But he did say in the epilogue of, of his book, There is a God, that he was reading some N.T. Wright. And in the works of N.T. Wright, he said, you know, the, the images, uh, the, the 
the personas of, of Jesus and Paul to him were just very compelling people. And he said, if anything, out of all the religions that he looked at, they were the most appealing. So he was close. Don't know if he actually, uh, you know, crossed that line, so to speak, but uh, let's hope. But he was on that way. And in 2004, as I mentioned earlier, he was at this uh, conference and he was talking about uh, how he became a believer in kind of an, a, 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 a god like Aristotle, uh, an unmoved mover, so to speak. And that it wasn't really personal and didn't change and that sort of thing. But he felt like there had to be something that got all this rolling. So he was always of the mind of the thing that he called the monkey theorem, meaning that if you put a whole bunch of monkeys in a room with computers or typewriters, whichever you know uh, era you're in, um, that eventually they'll come up with like the works of Shakespeare. Just it's just going to happen by chance. Well, he was in a in a debate with uh, an Israeli scientist named Gerald Schroeder, and in his book The Science of God, he talks, and then he also just you know said right in this. Uh, uh, conference that they were talking at. So instead of it being like a debate, they ended up all just talking about the uh, concept of God. So what Schroeder did was he said, okay, let's not even talk about the entire works of Shakespeare. He said, let's just take a sonnet. And so he took that uh, sonnet, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And he said, I counted the numbers of all the letters and there's 488 letters in that sonnet. So what is the likelihood of just know pounding away on a, on a keyboard and getting those 488 letters in the exact sequence with all the spaces um, in this sonnet and he says so what you end up with is 26 multiplied by itself 488 times or 26 to the 488th power or if you translate that into base 10 you got 10 to the 690th power now 10 to 10 the with 690 zeros exactly yeah I was just going to say, that. yeah, it's that big. To yeah. create something as complex randomly as the sonnet of Shakespeare. That only has 488 letters. letters. So there are only, um, as far as like particles in the universe, sort of talking like protons, electrons, neutrons, and all that, the number of particles in the universe is 10 to the 80th. Some say 10 to the 90th. It's still nowhere near 10 to the 690th, not even close. Wow. So you're way off. So the... The thing I would like to point out that they didn't bring up at all is, well, then if DNA with its ATCG and it's like a computer code, only more advanced, how many letters does it have? It's got 3.5 billion letters that it has to be in the right sequential order, like a computer code, because there, I forget who the scientist was, but uh, I was going to write it down, but I totally forgot. Um, this, this uh, example just came to mind. And he said that, yeah, we created uh, a DNA in the laboratory. Well, what they did was they took uh, kind of a blank slate and they copied, kind of like just making a, a copy in a computer. Well, the problem was is that it was so big that they were actually copying errors and it didn't work. And so when they went back and they looked at the code, they realized a couple of the letters were, you know, off. They were in the wrong place. And when they corrected it, then it worked like a computer code <laughs> i just i mean wow and yet they just say oh you know this this will just happen no wow. <laughs> no it's just not even no so again the math behind that the probability behind mm -hmm. that when you start to look at the complexity of dna and mm -hmm. you think about it like a code right is, is basically impossible right now, and that's one dna and we've got what trillions of dna through our body and all the cells i mean so it's <laughs> 
the numbers for that kind of probability are even like that blows out of the water even the cosmological constants oh, idea. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, the stuff in us is crazier than the universe. So, ba so basically, basically math-wise, right. it becomes a huge, huge problem. Uh, on yeah, multiplied on top of itself. That it just intelligent design along the mm. the the realm in the realm of what Christian and personal theists mm -hmm. believe is a cogent answer to that, but naturalism really cannot really give a, a no. good answer to, to any no. of and, and those, those aren't those even and, and there's an even bigger number that um, I, I didn't have the time to fully study it. Um, there's a guy named James Tour who's who was Jewish and became a Christian, and now he loves Jesus. And, of course, he's a uh, organic chemist, and he's, he's a pretty smart dude, and he knows his stuff, what he's doing in organ organic chemistry. And, of course, people give him a hard time because he's, uh, you know, he says he loves Jesus. And so clearly he's a religious nut and can't, he, we can't take his science seriously. But he has put out some pretty crazy things. And one of the things, and I, I, again, I need to study this more to fully understand it, is a thing called interactomes. And as its name, you know, implies that there's some interactions between different proteins and other um, chemicals. Again, I'm, I'm fuzzy on the details, but I just remember the number because it was so mind-numbingly ridiculous he goes the the rate of interaction that needs to happen for these interactomes is one to the i think it was 79 billionth power i don't even know wow. what that number means no i mean it's, it's inconceivable it's, but yeah you yeah. look if you look up james tour and talk about interactomes you'll find it and it that's on a but because you know we're, we're talking about specific things like a dna in the number right. that is associated with it. He's talking about on a more... The full complexity of the yeah, human... The, yeah, the interaction between the systems. We're talking bigger systems and the, you know, what has to happen to make all these things work so that we live is yeah. so astronomical. I, I don't even know what that number means, That's you know, how, how big it is. It's, it's larger than all of the stuff in the, in the known universe. And obviously we're learning more and more about the size of the universe. And it'll go up some. But not that much. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, that's really, really insightful and helpful, Sean. Appreciate mm -hmm. what, what you kind of brought to that conversation. Because, again, uh, like we're putting out there in terms of the premise of this whole conversation and this whole class, it, it's not that what we're talking about proves the right. existence of God Correct. or proves the existence of the Christian God. Right. Uh, but when you look at what we just talked about today, which is origin of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe and the complexity and fine tuning of, of life, the mm -hmm. intelligibility of it. Mm -hmm. um, th the question is what's a reasonable right. world worldview, right? What's a reasonable way to interpret all that? Mm -hmm. Is it naturalism, which right. we're told is mm -hmm. the only thing that smart people believe, right? Or is it some form of, of theism uh, and, and I think like when, when you have this conversation, you start to look at it and it's like, I, I would, I would never subscribe to something right. like uh, materialist, naturalist atheism mm -hmm. because it, it doesn't make sense in the, the questions that we must answer. Correct. And in our conscious experience. Mm -hmm. And so again, we're compiling evidence. Uh, in the same way we looked at the re the uh, reliability of scripture right. and you know the historic life of Jesus now we're getting into some of the the metaphysical questions of how all of this exists and why it exists and uh, it seems to me like Christianity has a reasonable answer to those questions and it seems to me mm -hmm. like something like scientific naturalism does not correct i would agree 
So um, as we as we continue, I think we're gonna we're gonna record one more. Good. Because there's some more nerdy stuff that mm-hmm. I want to talk about with you. Mm-hmm. And so when we come back in this next episode, uh, we're gonna talk about some some really interesting topics. We're gonna talk more about uh, you know less science, less numbers. We're gonna talk about things like consciousness the philosophy of mind Mm -hmm. what what is our conscious experience can it be explained materially Mm -hmm. or or is it something that seems to reach beyond the realm of naturalism Uh, something like free will what do the different worldviews say about that some uh, objective morality is Mm -hmm. there right and wrong is there good and evil and then uh, i think maybe we'll end with with what i think could be a very interesting discussion around the problem of evil yes and the fact that we live in a world that was that we as Christians say is created by a good God, mm-hmm. but there's evil. Right. And so, how is that possible? Why right. is that so? Uh, and 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 continue down this road of, of apologetics, yes. asking interesting questions, awesome. and, and talking through it. All right, great. All right, well, I appreciate you, Sean, yep. and uh, we'll see you again next time. Yep. And I uh, hope you guys tune in. Thank you.